Podglomerate original. Hey, podcast listeners. Are you planning holiday travel, dreaming of your next big adventure, or finally satisfying your wanderlust? If so, the next step might just be checking out Expedia's podcast, Out Travel the System. More than travel hacks, Out Travel the System breaks down travel-related stereotypes and showcases just how much there is to see and experience in the world. You'll hear from expert guests like Condé Nast's former creative director, Yolanda Edwards, and industry pioneer, Jessica Nabongo, who is the first black woman to visit all the countries in the world. However, and wherever you travel, follow Out Travel the System everywhere you listen to podcasts. Hey, Trailweight listeners. Before we start today's episode, I wanted to quickly tell you about another podcast, The Carbon Copy. Climate change can often feel like a far-off problem or tend to be siloed as a scientific story. But everything is a climate story. And that's where The Carbon Copy comes in. Hosted by climate reporter Stephen Lacey, The Carbon Copy covers climate change by connecting it to the significant cultural, economic, business, and tech trends that shape the world around us. Produced by Postscript Media and Canary Media, the carbon copy informs, enlightens, and sparks curiosity about how a changing climate affects our lives. From Russia's war on Ukraine to the housing crisis to decisions handed down from the Supreme Court, the carbon copy explores how climate change and the energy transition connect to today's biggest stories. To hear more, follow and subscribe to the carbon copy on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. I'm Andrew Stephen, and this is Trailweight, a podcast about hiking outdoors and the lessons learned along the way. On today's episode, we're stepping off the trail for a moment, and we'll be back to the hike on the next one. But today, we're taking a break to talk about what we often hear referred to as America's best idea. To what's been called America's best idea, our national parks. There's something sacred about this place. The origin story behind U.S.'s national parks seems to always tell the story of seemingly mythical men. It's no wonder then that 150 years ago, President Lincoln first protected the ground on which we stand. George Bird Grinnell, Teddy Roosevelt. Teddy Roosevelt, who called the great trees here a temple grander than any human architect could possibly build. And the namesake of the trail we were currently on, John Muir. Uh, Spent a whole bunch of time camping around here with John Muir. And like President Barack Obama just said, they saw these sacred spaces and the need to preserve and protect them for future generations. So people like me could come along and hike through them many years later. I remember watching through Ken Burns' National Park series on PBS a few years ago and thinking about how wonderful an idea the national parks were and how grateful I had been to be able to visit them. The first time I arrived in Yellowstone, I got off the bus right outside the north entrance where there's that, that wonderful stone arch that says, for the benefit and enjoyment of the people. It doesn't say for the benefit and enjoyment of some of the people 
or a few of the people. It says all of the people. And for me, that meant democracy. And for me, that meant I was welcome. And I... As a kid and now as an adult, visiting these public lands is something I find myself doing a lot. You know, 48% of the land in the Western United States is public lands. Much of that, probably most of that, taken illegally from Native people. And so... This is Professor Dina Gillia Whitaker. We heard her briefly on an earlier episode, and she's a writer, scholar of Indigenous studies, and a member of the Colville Confederated Tribes. I interact with Park Service people in various ways, and uh, it seems to be becoming more frequent. There's a recognition that things are askew, there's inaccuracies of the history, the injustices, and needing to really look at how do we take a different approach to land management and with an eye toward justice. Professor Whitaker and many others have been saying that the way we're running our national parks has been keeping this false narrative alive. And so this week, we're talking with Dina Gillia Whitaker to find out the truth behind America's best idea. But first... I, well, you know, I grew up in L.A., so when you grow up in L.A., you, like one way or another, you're going to get involved in beach culture. Yeah. Well, maybe not everybody, because not everybody has equal access to the ocean. But still, growing up, my parents, you know, we went to Santa Monica Beach during the summer times on the weekends and, you know, in the 60s. And, you know, wave riding was pretty much what we did when we could get to the beach. And so later... I moved to Hawaii in 1980, I was in my early 20s, and I, I moved to the, to the North Shore of Oahu not knowing I was moving to the epicenter of the surf world. I mean, I literally didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. I had moved there for a whole other reason involving a guy, and, um, and, and so while I was there living in Haleiwa in, in the epicenter of the surf world, I did what you do when you live on the North Shore because there's nothing else to do, and that's learn to surf. Yeah. You know, for the two and a half years that I lived there, I ate, breathed, lived surfing and the lifestyle. And I moved back to California after two and a half, three years and kept surfing. But then I fell out of it. I, I moved to Northern California to the wine country, I wasn't very close to the ocean, and the ocean was really, really cold. I was going to say, it's a lot harder to, to get out in the ocean when you're in Northern California. <laughs> it's really, yeah, it, it just pretty much ended surfing for me for 25 years. Like, literally, oh, wow. I did not surf for 25 years. And so I reconnected with an old boyfriend from my North Shore days who was living in San Clemente. Long story short, I married him. I'm married to him now. And that was 11 years ago. So I got back into surfing and I was living in New Mexico at the time in, in grad school. And so I got back into surfing while I was visiting him here in San Clemente. So I just been surfing again. So I restarted surfing at age 50. That's awesome. And I'm 62 now, almost 63, and I still surf. When she's not surfing, Dina Gillia Whitaker authored the books As Long as Grass Grows and All the Real Indians Died Off, and has written a lot about environmental justice and the false narratives about Native Americans, though surfing is still an important part of her life. And I've incorporated as part of really my research agenda, there's this whole 
coincidentally, there's this whole emerging scholarship that seems to be booming and, ex and exploding with regard to, uh, you know, what's being called critical surf studies. So I just use the opportunity to do like research from the perspective of settler colonialism. Like, so there's like, it's a whole other conversation that yeah. is way beyond surfing USA yeah, and, yeah. you know, like getting the stoke <laughs> and like all of that. So um, there's all these, you know, very diverse perspectives that people are bringing into the scholarship. And I bring my perspective as an American Indian woman looking at the history of surfing. So a lot of what's happening with it is that surfing's being rewritten, you know, and corrected really from a century, a full century of these really uh, incorrect, very limited narratives that have been written from the perspective of white men. There's a, a predominant narrative in surf history that emerged from the turn of the 20th century with a character named Alexander Hume Ford, who partnered up with Jack London, the literary writer, yeah. right? This liter American literary uh, icon um, who had gotten, you know, it was one of the things he was famous for was going to Hawaii, sailing to Hawaii on this boat called the Snark which he wrote a book about and learned to surf with Alexander Hume Ford there. And they kind of came up with this plan that they had said, you know, Hawaiians allowed the sport to die. That's literally how they narrated it. They allowed the sport to die. Thus, because we are now resurrecting the sport, we are saving the sport. So it's a total white, great white hope narrative. Yeah. White savior narrative. And they pretty much made this up. There was only a kernel of truth in it. And the kernel of truth was that surfing, standing up on boards, riding boards, standing up was pretty much gone. But it was really, it turns out, due to the research of native Hawaiian scholars who could mine Hawaiian language archives to find out the veracity of those claims, it turns out that, yes, there was a decline in surfing around Honolulu at that time, and it had to do with population collapse, not because the Hawaiians, you know, like just got bored with it yeah. and gave it up after, you know, 1500 years of surfing. It's, be, it's directly related to this population collapse due to foreign diseases that they failed to mention. And also the fact that in the outer parts of the like Oahu and the other islands, these surfing traditions are still happening. But what gets recorded in the historical narrative by white male journalists for a century, like these st stories repeated over and over and over, it's taken for granted that surfing gets saved by Alexander Hume Ford and Jack London. The way history in general is told always begins with, with white people, with settlers, mm -hmm. you know, with with people who come to a landscape that is empty somehow. Yeah. And certainly this is the case with, with surfing. But the fact of it is that it could not have happened the way it did without the ethnic cleansing that had yeah. just been completed just within a couple of decades prior. And this is just one discovery of many things that had already been discovered. And America's best idea of discovering and preserving these 
wilderness parks are no different. I mean, it, it begins with this, the, the idea of how we understand wilderness and wilderness being a place free of people. In his book, Dispossessing the Wilderness, author Mark David Spence links the creation of national parks with the U.S. federal policy of Native American removal. He writes that the first quote-unquote wilderness areas that the government wanted to protect had to first be created. Not only were the areas indigenous occupied, but the idea of an uninhabited wilderness was an invented concept. Wilderness is always uh, wild places with wild animals and plants, and there's no people there. And I mean, the whole reason this concept of wilderness gets invented, well, for one thing, it's connected to the virgin soil mythology that this is a, a deep part of American history, American narratives, that's all about justifying the foreign invasion into and then legitimizing the violent displacement of native people. Like Commonly thought of as the father of the national parks and a major proponent of conservationism and environmentalism, John Muir irreparably altered and changed the ecosystem of one of the first national parks. Yosemite. Before John Muir even set foot there, the Awanichi people lived in the area we now know as Yosemite for at least 3,500 years. But Muir's conceived idea of wilderness didn't involve humans. In the Wilderness Act of 1964, wilderness is defined as, quote, an area where the earth and its community of life are untrammeled by man, where man himself is absent, unquote. The American idea of wilderness did not exist. It had to be created. Muir would go on to write that he found the indigenous people he met to be, quote, most ugly and some of them altogether hideous, unquote. And in Yosemite, he would add, quote, they seem to have no right place in the landscape, and I was glad to see them fading out of sight down the pass, unquote. Perhaps unfathomable to Muir, these quote-unquote strange creatures as he described them, were the very people responsible for Yosemite's quote-unquote landscape gardens that he so praised. So there's two different things going on here. Like, on the one hand, like, oh, it's a virgin. The continent is a virgin wilderness, right? Yeah. But then there's all these narratives and stories and journals of early, you know, arrivals about their interactions with Native people and how, I mean, even in, you know, the... There's recognition about how the creation of the U.S. Constitution is influenced by Iroquois people. So there's like these two competing narratives that somehow nobody seems to question. But, but it's still this, this idea as populations explode, especially in the East, with all these waves of migration, um, especially during the 1800s, you have an, an urbanization the growing up of cities and the shrinking of natural spaces leads to this like national angst about growing pollution in in these urban areas and you know it coincides with the closing of the frontier right so the western expansion is now complete there's this whole romanticization that goes with these pioneering stories and you know the wild west and all of that stuff and california becoming 
uh, a state in 1850, the West is finally closed. And so there's, that's part of like the angst, you know, like no more romanticizing about the Wild West and intrepid pioneering and all that stuff. Now it starts to become like, we need to start protecting, you know, what's left of these wide, wide open spaces. And now it's about, you know, wise land use. You know, this concept of wilderness gets, you know, further entrenched in the national imagination. Um, And as Mark David Spence says, you know, by 1872, when Yellowstone is created under the guise of protecting wilderness, like at first it has to be created, this wilderness. And how do they do it? By running people off the land that have been there since time immemorial. Conservation is often talked about as preserving nature in its natural state and to have as little impact as possible. It's so easy for me to sort of see how like one can fall for the sales pitch of conservation. But then when you take a step back, like you're saying, it's, you know, who are making these decisions? You have to create wilderness first in order to conserve it. And it's it's almost like it's a, a new form or a hidden form, of, again, of colonialism. Yeah. And, and it's really a reflection of a very, very different orientation to space and to land and to the natural world. Like to have this category you call wilderness, which is separate from humans is something that native people would not have recognized. And you often hear people say that we don't have a word for wilderness in our language because there was no view of being seen as separate from that, right? In a, in a worldview that's relational, right? You are part of, part of the natural world. So, um, so it's like comparing apples and oranges and the tensions between those two worldviews to this day are what hamper legal protections for Native American sacred sites outside reservation boundaries. So when when you hear like a phrase like public land, like what do you hear or what is that? What does that mean to you? Yeah, pu- public land is just stolen Indian lands. I mean, that, that's what they are. These are for Native people. These are homelands. There is no place on this continent that wasn't indigenous lands that people did not occupy or use on a regular basis. When settlers came, you know, they came into these spaces that they didn't always see people in, but that was because the people weren't using the land in the ways that Europeans would recognize. Yeah. Meaning like really densely populated, permanent structures attached to the land through regimes of private property ownership. Like they couldn't grok that. And so already coming onto the land with these ideas that they were superior to begin with because of their really messed up ideas about land, then native people with their relational worldviews that didn't really conceive of ownership in the same way that, that Europeans did, it was easy to justify in all these ways, the violent dispossession that happens later. This episode is brought to you by our sponsor, BetterHelp. 
When learning how to backpack, one of my first purchases was a small, portable, butane stove. And the first thing I saw when I opened the box was a small folded up set of instructions. After a quick read, I turned it on, and it worked without a problem. Unfortunately, not everything comes with a set of instructions. And life is one of those things without a user manual. And most of it isn't problem-free. So when life's not working, it's normal to feel stuck, lost, and unsure of how to proceed. We may not have an instruction booklet for life, but thankfully there are people trained to help us navigate a career change, work through relationship issues, and help us approach feelings of stress, anger, or anxiety. I've personally found therapy to be beneficial in talking through complex issues, processing pain, learning productive skills, and so much more. And BetterHelp has connected more than 3 million people with the help they need. If you're thinking of giving therapy a try or are having trouble finding the right help, BetterHelp is a great option. It's convenient, accessible, and affordable. And, as the world's largest therapy service, BetterHelp has matched 3 million people with professionally licensed and vetted therapists, all available 100% online. Plus, it's affordable. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to match with a therapist. You can easily switch to a new therapist anytime if things aren't clicking. It couldn't be simpler. No waiting rooms. No traffic. No endless searching for the right therapist. Learn more and save 10% off your first month at BetterHelp.com wait. That's better. H-E-L-P dot W-E-I-G-H-T. If you're looking for another podcast to listen to, check out Vanishing Postcards. Hosted by Evan Stern, Vanishing Postcards is all about being outside, on the open road, and seeing new places. In the latest season, Vanishing Postcards invites listeners to drive cross-country on Route 66 and experience everything from a dance in Tulsa to an eating contest in the Texas Panhandle, to a morning on the Santa Monica Pier. Vanishing Postcards explores how this iconic road's past, present, and future are revealed through the stories of the people and places on Route 66 today. If you're looking for an episode to try, check out Postcards from the Mother Road, The Roots of Route 66, and hear all about how the legend of Route 66, which spans almost 7,000 miles, came to be. You can join their road trip by following Vanishing Postcards wherever you get your podcasts. In the summer of 2020, partially in response to the murder of George Floyd by the Minneapolis police, and the protests that followed, and the removal of Confederate monuments, the Sierra Club released a statement titled, Pulling Down Our Monuments. In it, they write... The Sierra Club is a 128-year-old organization with a complex history, some of which has caused significant and immeasurable harm. As defenders of black life pull down Confederate monuments across the country, we must also take this moment to re-examine our past and our substantial role in perpetuating white supremacy. It's time to take down some of our own monuments, starting with some truth-telling about the Sierra Club's early history. The Sierra Club like put out a, a thing talking about we need to tear down our monuments and, and oh, yeah. changing with John Muir. Yeah, I got contacted by more than one person about that. You know, I mean, I think it was because of the uprising and it's in some ways it's surprising, but the movement has also been building in the big green industry. And they do this, they evaluate themselves like these big green organizations. They, re, they evaluate themselves for their diversity and equity. So they're not unaware. They have not been unaware that they have an image problem around whiteness, you know? <laughs> and so it was not surprising that 
that John Muir would be taken to task because scholars have been taking John Muir to task for years. Yeah. This is not a new conversation. In their piece, the Sierra Club admitted that John Muir, one of the club's founding members, made derogatory comments about black people and indigenous people that drew on deeply harmful racist stereotypes. And that Muir maintained friendships with people like Henry Fairfield Osborne, who worked for both the conservation of nature and the conservation of the white race, and also helped found the American Eugenic Society in the years after Muir's death. And they go on to write that our early Sierra Club members and leaders, like Joseph LeConte and David Starr Jordan, were vocal advocates for white supremacy and its pseudo-scientific arm, eugenics. Jordan pushed for forced sterilization laws and programs that deprived tens of thousands of women of their right to bear children, mostly black, Latinx, indigenous, and poor women, and those living with disabilities and mental illness. He co-founded the Human Betterment Foundation, whose research and model laws were used to create Nazi Germany's eugenics legislation. So Aldo Leopold, I mean, he was a contemporary of John Muir, but he was he idolized John Muir. And he's kind of considered the father of modern conservation. He goes to school in, in the 1920s, goes to school at Yale in the Yale Forestry Program. And he becomes famous, and he works for the federal government, like right after coming out of Yale. And then he, he starts teaching, and he was a prolific writer. And, you know, he's just, like, idolized. He's, he's, his work is, like, part of the canon of the conservation world. And he's celebrated as sort of revolutionarily changing the world of conservation from what they call utilitarianism to this perspective of how we utilize the land or use the land in ways that are destructive or constructive. You know, he has this awakening and and he writes this essay called The Sand County Almanac. And he writes about the land ethic in there. There's this this, this famous thing like the, the, the land ethic. And, and it's because he has this epiphany about humans are, you know, we, we are part of a, a biotic community. So he starts seeing that humans are not separate from nature, that humans are plain member citizens, this is the language that he used, plain member citizens of it. And so he gets celebrated as having this radical new, like, worldview, but, but it's like native people have been living that way for thousands of years. Like that's how, what it is to be, to live sustainably within particular ecosystems. And so there's all these work being done by scholars and they're saying, well, you know, some, some people have said, oh, he was, he was influenced by native Americans and, you know, it, that it shows in his work, but there's really no evidence for that. And it's actually pretty offensive for native people to hear that for a variety of reasons. But it's like, why does a white guy who has this, you know, change of mind in the you know, 1940s and, you know, he's celebrated the world over for it, but, yeah. you know, indigenous people have always lived that way. And, and yet it's our knowledges that get erased, that get considered 
inferior, they're, you know, we're just ignorant savages, all of that stuff. So Aldo Leopold is getting knocked off his pedestal, just like John Muir is. And that, that's going to keep happening as we continue to interrogate these long-standing white celebratory mythological people and narratives. The lingering effects of Muir and Roosevelt and the Wilderness Protection Acts have institutionalized the idea of wilderness as places always in need of protection and that should be free from human presence. But as Professor Whitaker writes in her book, As Long As Grass Grows, quote, this logic completely evades the fact of ancient indigenous habitation and cultural use of such places, end quote. She goes on to say that, quote, when environmentalists laud America's best idea and reiterate narratives about pristine national park environments, they are participating in the erasure of indigenous peoples, thus replicating colonial patterns of white supremacy and settler privilege, end quote. So what does that mean for national parks moving forward? I interact with Park Service people in various ways. For example, I'm involved in an organization called the Upstander Academy, and we do professional development training for teachers. So what we do is we train them in reframing the narratives, American historical narratives, and look at it through the lens of genocide, like teaching a really straightforward, this is really the actual history of this country. And, you know, of course, there's these environmental elements that we incorporate into that. And so we had some high level National Park Service people in that training last year, and we continue to interact with them. You know, I'm cautiously optimistic about what I see as far as the desire to want to change things. And I think this land back movement is definitely going to continue to loom large. Returning public land, stolen land back. There's many different ways or ways that we can look at that the restoration of lands to Native people can happen. It can happen through land trusts. It can happen through conservation easements. It can happen through co-management agreements. Tribal parks are another way that I see. So all these different kinds of arrangements and the ways that that can happen. In 2021, the U.S. just swore in our first Native American Secretary of the Interior. I, Deborah Holland. I, Deborah Holland. Do solemnly swear. Do solemnly swear. That I will support and defend. That I will support and defend. And a big part of the job as Secretary of the Interior is managing national parks and public land. I will honor the sovereignty of tribal nations and recognize their part in America's story and I'll be a fierce advocate for our public lands. I believe we all have a stake in the future of our country, and I believe that every one of us... For some, the idea of giving the land back seems too big, too difficult, or, unfortunately, too unlikely. But people said the same thing when the U.S. first started the national park movement. Many thought it was too big of an idea that wouldn't ever work with too many things standing in its way. But it happened. And maybe it could happen again. Trailweight will be back in two weeks. We'll see you then. 
Trailweight is produced and written by Andrew Steven. Our story producer is Monty Montepar. Music by Breakmaster Cylinder and Epidemic Sound. Executive produced by Jeff Umbro and the Podglomerate. Dina Gilio Whitaker's books can be found wherever books are sold. All of these and more are linked in the show notes and at trailweight.co. Thanks so much for listening. Conglomerate Original.